Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be around the world listening to Politics Plus Media 101, folks. Today, we have a special event that was recorded late last night, so only a couple hours ago, with John Gunnison and myself, and we are reacting to the news out of the UK, which is a chaotic mess, it seems like, for the last year plus with their politics, really making the US here look like a bastion of stability, and also the shifting polls in the United States, as for a lot of listeners know, the early voting period has started. So mail-in voting, um, and in-person early voting. And we will get into all of that and a lot more on today's show. So Mr. Gunnison, I wanted to start with, we all are aware now that Rishi Sunak is the new prime minister in the UK. But from a US perspective, or an outsider's perspective, somebody that's not immersed in UK politics, why should this matter? And more specifically, the UK is not a global power anymore. They really seem like they're on an economic death spiral or downward spiral. I don't know if we'd categorize it as depression or recession, especially after leaving the EU. And their political turmoil has been, it feels like for an outsider, we've had a new prime minister now every two or three months. So why should we care about yet another name that may not be that long? I would probably take issue with the claim that the UK are not a global power. Um, Certainly, the UK are a power on decline economically, soft power politically, but they remain an incumbent power. They're one of the largest economies in the world, certainly in the top 10. They are a, a quite powerful military. They play a key role in US alliances. And the US are going to look to the UK as a key partner on the effort to support Ukraine against Russia and on the effort to confront China economically. And the difference between some of the candidates inside the Conservative Party in the UK on those matters is relevant. For anyone in Europe, it's very important not to have one of the biggest economies on the periphery turn into a complete basket case and collapse. Those in Ireland, and especially Northern Ireland, uh, need to see the UK play a responsible, predictable role in the issues around the Good Friday Agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, The US looked to the UK for support on naval issues, as we've seen uh, with the recent AUKUS nuclear submarine plan where the UK are playing a role. The UK have joined the US in lots of joint statements and joint initiatives on matters of security. There was just a letter that was released by the UK, the USA, and I believe France condemning Russia's claims that Ukraine are developing a dirty bomb, for example. The UK have a seat, a permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council. There's so many reasons why the UK still play an important, significant role in the world. And it's in no one's interest to have any country in the Western alliance, let alone one as important and significant as the UK, turn into a complete basket case. We have significant instability and insecurity on Eastern Europe. We do not need the same on Western Europe. Not that the crises are similar. So John, haven't they turned into a a basket case? Or uh, is this a momentary blip? We've run through, from David Cameron, we've had Prime Minister Theresa May, we've had Prime Minister, the infamous Boris Johnson, we've had 
lose trust for a couple months now. And, and now Rishi Sunak, is this instability a momentary blip or is it rather more serious and due to the structural issues that we've kind of ticked off of uh, declining power, economic turmoil, and really just a set of fundamentals that nobody is really well equipped to deal with? Well, when I suggested the problem of having a basket case and a crisis on each flank of Europe, I was implicitly comparing the UK to Ukraine. Certainly, certainly the UK's situation is nowhere near as stark as that one. But I meant to emphasize the importance of having a stable and unified Western alliance in a time of emergency elsewhere in Europe. What I will say is that the UK are in long-term decline. They are in long-term economic decline. They're in long-term decline as a political actor on the global stage. And just like you mentioned, we are now on the fifth prime minister since the Conservative Party, also called the Tory Party, came into government in 2010, 12 years ago. So we've had 12 years of consecutive Tory Party rule. For the first five of those years, the Tory Party were in a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. So it hasn't been consecutive single party rule. However, they've had the prime minister and the chancellor of the exchequer throughout that entire period. And it's been, not to put too fine a point on it, 12 years of Tory misrule and decisions, unnecessary decisions that were taken by the Tory party leaders during this time have significantly damaged the UK standing in the world. There's no way around that. And many times throughout this experience, it seemed as though the key figures in the Conservative Party are thinking more about internal party dynamics and internal party management than they are the greater good of the country. And that's been a really big problem. We saw that David Cameron was gambling the future of first his party, then the union, you know, the continued existence of the United Kingdom as a unified political entity, and then the economic future and economic position of the UK in three consecutive referenda, the one on alternative vote, then the one on Scottish independence, and lastly, and most infamously, the one on EU membership. And he did this in many cases to gratify some political constituency that mattered for his ability to manage parliament. And finally, he lost. Then the premiership went over to Theresa May, who was left holding the bag on the disastrous, really, decision to leave the European Union, uh, left with parliamentary math that made it impossible to negotiate with Europe after a snap election that she called in 2017 unnecessarily and lost her absolute majority in the Commons. Then Boris Johnson came in, uh, a gentleman who always refused to uh, take the difficult decisions and tried as best he could to avoid them, entered into a agreement to finally officially leave the single market of the European Union, but uh, on terms at which he immediately tried to undermine and work around and attack the deal that he himself signed, especially in regard to the Northern Ireland Protocol, when his personal misdeeds and his personal life and in the way that he conducted himself at number 10 Downing Street came to light, he lost his credibility, he lost the support of the country, and he lost the support of his party and was forced out. Uh, then we had uh, this bizarre 44-day, you said two months, it was actually less than two months, 44-day premiership of Liz Truss, a person who no one in the 
uh, parliamentary party had really much faith could really do the job. In fact, there's some theories that she was put forward by Boris Johnson's backers specifically because they did not have trust that she could actually lead the country. And now we're left with uh, Rishi Sunak to try to navigate Britain competently through a period of uh, significant financial and economic crisis. And, you know, given the roster of contenders that we've had and the recent incumbents, uh, you have to really wish Rishi the best and hope that he's uh, the right man to do this. And there are some suggestions that he could be. He's someone with a lot of financial knowledge and economic knowledge. He was generally seen as a, a serious head inside of the government. And he served as Boris Johnson's chancellor of the Exchequer, which is the equivalent of the finance secretary. And um, he's a, you know a lot less focused on playing the political game than he is on running the government, which is uh, what the UK have been missing for all this time. So picking up on that, so Liz Truss was largely undone by her foolhardy economic policies that the silly minds of folks on the conservative side here in the United States, like Larry Kudlow, were praising. And and you never want Larry Kudlow to, <laughs> to, to make a declarative statement around your name in, in favor of you, because once he does, it, it seems like to be the death knell, because then um, a whole cascade of horrors is about to come down on you, like him you know, infamously uh, explaining that the pandemic was over when he was working for Trump in 2020 and that there wouldn't be economic consequences. And then obviously the pandemic got to its worst point and the markets crashed. But more seriously, is there any grand policy initiative that we should be looking out for uh, from Sunak and his administration? Or is this really just, uh, let's get back to stability. This gentleman is promising stability as opposed to shaking things up vigorously. Well, Larry Kudlow's praise for the Liz Truss, Kwasi Kwarteng mini budget is revealing because Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, her chancellor, are much like Kudlow. They were people who looked to Thatcherite, Reaganites, libertarians, supply-side economics uh, from almost a theocratic perspective. Uh, one of our uh, theological perspective, I should say, they look to it as dogma rather than as a set of tools that could be applied in the appropriate circumstances to achieve policy outcomes. This was uh, a period in which the libertarian orthodoxy was completely inappropriate as Britain uh, are facing a significant financial crisis. Their inflation in Britain is over 10% much higher than it is in the United States. There is uh, an upcoming fuel crisis that will probably hit the UK very hard. And this is going to require the UK to spend money to help subsidize these rising fuel costs. This was not the time to remove the caps on bankers' bonuses and cut taxes for the top income bracket. These are tools that could be useful under different circumstances, but they were not the right ones to apply now. And the markets reacted terribly to this. And there's something perhaps ironic or poetic about the markets themselves punishing a bit of pro-market, free market, laissez-faire dogma. The reason that, uh, you know, that undergrids that kind of ideology that Truss and Quartang and Kudlow believe is that the market is always right and the market should be trusted. And when the market saw this plan, they punished it. And the market essentially forced Liz Truss and Quartang out of office. So right now, uh, we have a good idea of who the team are going to be. After Quartang, 
was sacked by Liz Truss in a desperate attempt to save her premiership, she replaced him with Jeremy Hunt, who immediately U-turned almost all of the economic plan that Quarteng and Truss had put out. He will probably be staying as the Chancellor of the Exchequer. We'll know soon whether or not he will, with Rishi Sunak as a PM, a former Chancellor. Rishi Sunak, during the leadership fight that he had against Liz Truss earlier this summer, it's remarkable that he's just completed his second leadership fight in only two months. He expressed his perspective on Liz Truss's economic plans and lambasted them and said, you're going to cut a massive hole in our financial credibility. You can't increase spending and cut taxes at the same time and hope we're going to be on good fiscal standing. It's pretty clear that he's going to be taking the UK in a very different direction, one of fiscal responsibility, uh, fiscal conservatism, you could almost say keeping the tax increases that were already scheduled in place and increasing spending and subsidies only within the feasible means that the UK have. And the reason that we can trust that Sunak's premiership will last longer than Liz Truss's is because, crucially, he has the support of the parliamentary party to pursue this agenda. This is what Liz Truss was really missing and why it was possible to force her out so quickly. Rishi Sunak has demonstrated that the MPs in parliament, serving in parliament for the Conservative Party, support him. He was the only candidate in this recent round of leadership nominations to achieve the standard that he needed to achieve as a credible candidate for leadership. He consolidated support within the party. So he will have majorities that he can turn to to pass his agenda. So I think that we can expect that he's going to be around quite a bit longer than Truss, whether or not he does end up being the person to lead the Tory party into the elections that are scheduled for 2024. Yeah. And, and right now, it seems like nobody wants Boris Johnson back except for maybe Boris Johnson. And he may be the only other legitimate option that is out there. I would not agree with that. Because there were significant, well-known figures in the Tory party who came out and backed Boris Johnson in this leadership fight. And they have hung themselves out to dry. They've been embarrassed, exposed, humiliated by Johnson. Johnson was on a Caribbean holiday when Liz Truss resigned and got on a plane ready to fly back to the UK to fight for leadership, putting out in the press that this is what he was doing. Even though Johnson had been kicked out of office only 44 days ago. Johnson had a raison uh, d'etre here by saying he was the leader when the Tories won their majority in 2019. So he had a democratic mandate to lead the country. And there is a kind of sense to that argument. However, Boris Johnson also lost the support of the country. He also was forced from office. He claimed that he was determined to fight for leadership again. And Significant figures in the Tory party came out and said they were supporting him. People like uh, Nadim Zawahi, who was uh, Boris's last chancellor. People like Ben Wallace, who is a very well-respected defense minister in the UK, who many people were asking to stand for leadership. I believe that uh, James Cleverly, um, who was the foreign secretary appointed by Liz Truss, also endorsed Boris. Jacob Rees-Mogg, a well-known uh, kind of uh, provocative, uh, flamboyant politician who had the business and energy uh, portfolio under Liz Trust. These people came out and said that they were supporting Boris. And it looked for a while in the press as though Boris had a path 
to get 100 nominations from the party and force a vote of the full party membership, which he had a very good chance of winning based on the polls of Tory party membership that we've seen. However, it seemed as though Boris and his team were lying to the press about how many nominations and how much support they actually had. And they ended up backing out of the leadership battle before any votes were really counted, which suggested that the reports that were coming out of their side were inflated. And so these figures, like I said, people who, some of them were very respected, people like Sawari and Wallace, have been exposed by Boris, flocking back to his side and supporting him, only to be left hung out to dry. And I think it's a lesson that other people in the party should learn, is that if you trust Boris, you you will eventually regret it. Uh, that uh, there isn't really a lot of reward for loyalty. Uh, that it will embarrass you. If you have to go out in the press and make excuses and explain all the scandalous things that he's done, you will look like a fool. And it does remind you in that sense, even though Boris and Donald Trump are quite different of that dynamic. Yeah, Trump is significantly worse. So I guess the last part of this, I don't even know how to describe it. it. It feels like I'm interested in what is happening in the UK, similar to an onlooker who's interested in the car crash on the other side of the highway, just because of almost how grotesque it seems and how disorganized it is uh, and how it's not the United States political system that is experiencing this at the moment. But I guess looking forward, so obviously, John, after all of this turmoil, the Labor Party has shot up in the polling. And and it's really been an inflection point. Um, but as we tell people, when I'm asked about US elections in 20, never mind November of 2022, in a couple weeks here, but about 2024, I say, this is ridiculous. There's, there's nothing, that, there's no amount of predictions that we can make about what's going to happen in 2024. It's just way too far off. Is there anything that we can glean from what is happening now, from the massive shift in public perception of the two parties, really the Tory party that's led up to all of these changes in the polling, um, right now that we can take from 2024? Is, is there any um, fundamentals or predictions that we can make? I do have an answer to that question. But first, I want to address something else that you mentioned at the beginning of your comment there, which is that we pay attention to the UK because it's interesting. And I think that that's true. And I saw comments uh, on Twitter from journalists throughout the last week that were pointing out all of the attention that we in the US, especially in the kind of media circles, pay to the UK and questioning whether it's appropriate or proportionate and wondering if we are paying too much attention to the UK in comparison to other countries that are closer to home that also really matter to us. You know, we don't pay this much attention to Mexican politics, and maybe we should. I mean, Mexico um, are an, a significant country, you know, over 100 million people, very large border with the United States, one of the top 15 economies in the world, an important partner. Massive trade partner. Yeah, huge trade partner, huge trade partner. A very important country that the inside baseball of their political system receives almost no attention in U.S. English language mainstream media. Canada, uh, another huge trade partner, huge economy, huge border right next to the United States. We don't follow their politics as much as we do the U.K. 
we don't receive in American media the same coverage of Indian politics and so on and so on and so on. So perhaps we need to correct that a little bit. But I did mention before all the reasons the UK does matter. Now, about trying to project the 2024 elections, first I want to say that elections in the UK can happen earlier than scheduled under certain circumstances. If Parliament calls a new election, they could hold the election earlier. And you will be hearing in the coming weeks and months many people calling for the government to call a new election. Because clearly the current government has lost the support of the public. Some of the recent polls show that the support is as low as 6%. That's one one digit, 6%, less than 7 You will be hearing Labor Party and others calling for the government to bring a new election. I do not think that that is likely. I think that the government will try as hard as they can to make it to 2024 before they need to have an election, which is the last time that they can have an election. I think that they will... I think that Rishi Sunak could last that amount of time for the reasons that I mentioned. But uh, what will happen, I think, is almost certainly a labor victory. I think that if you look at patterns in UK politics, you see that partisan control of government is on cycles. For example, the labor government that preceded the uh, the period of Tory party rule lasted 13 years from 1997 to 2010. We're now about to hit 13 years of Tory party rule. It's time for them to leave power I think looking back at this grand scope of period in which they were in power, like I described from Cameron onwards, they've really made a mess of things. And I think that the public are coming to a pretty clear consensus on that. The leader of the Labour Party is someone who's respected, credible, mainstream, unlike his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. This is Keir Starmer. I think lots of people who could never vote for Corbyn are happy to vote for Starmer. I think that the Labour Party are proving that they can be a governing party for the country. The Brexit issue is much less polarized and kind of behind us in a lot of ways. It really looks like Labour will win whenever the next election is held. All right. I can promise our audience that this will be the last UK show we do for a long, long while now. Now on to more important things, which is a very big election that we have upcoming in just a couple weeks now, uh, I think it's really important that we just give a lay of the land, especially since we'll have episodes that take a deep dive into uh, the state of the race in Georgia soon and uh, a few other states. But as we get into the last two weeks of this election, three weeks of this election, it's very important to note that there's been a shift in polling. And polling in of itself is very inherently uh, volatile, especially, I would say, over the last eight years in the United States for a variety of reasons, which I'm not going to bore you with those reasons that that make polling um, a a little bit uh, quixotic here in the United States. Um, But that is to say, on October 6th, there's something called the congressional, generic congressional ballot, where you have a question that asks potential voters, whether it be registered voters or likely voters, who would you rather support for a seat in Congress, a Republican or a Democrat? And on October 6th, according to Real Clear Politics, which takes, it's a poll aggregator. So it takes a bunch of different polls and mashes their numbers together. Um, On October 6th, the answer to this question was R plus 0.7. So less than one percentage point suggested that they would rather have a Republican in office, which is very surprising considering the fundamentals of the race, which we can get into. And it would be a very good sign, a bullish sign 
for Democrats to outperform historical trends. However, today, it's October 24th, Real Clear Politics has the number at Republicans plus three. So while it's a 2.3% shift, that shift has happened in 18 days. That is a massive shift, especially since we're getting closer and closer and closer to the election. So I think it's very important that we just get into uh, what this means and, and why it's potentially important. And ultimately, what we're seeing here is that this shift, along with certain state-level polls, so we've seen in Pennsylvania, polling for Dr. Oz has become much better. In Georgia, polling for Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate there, has improved. In Arizona, you have internals from the Mark Kelly campaign saying that it's a dead heat. Now, you can't really, you got to take that at face value because there's a variety of reasons why folks uh, in that campaign would say that. Um, But in Nevada, and I'm probably butchering the name of the state, uh, but the polling for Cortez Masto looks extremely bleak. So you do have certain races that align with the congressional generic ballot. But ultimately, this points to a a potential red wave. Now, I don't know if if we'd say a a red wave, so to speak, as in 40 or 50 seats. But the momentum from, I believe, July through September was trending towards, really September 26th, was trending towards the Democrats. And now this momentum has, it's felt like it's reversed and it's begun to trend more towards the Republicans. And that has been bored out um, in polling. So this is something that is very important uh, to look into, especially considering that the balance and control of the House of Representatives and also the United States Senate hangs in the balance for for this election. So I have, I have a question about how we interpret the generic congressional ballot question. We know that the districts in the U.S. Congress are not proportionate uh, to the broader demographics of the country necessarily because of gerrymandering, the engineering of the lines around congressional districts. Are we really able to look at the generic ballot and tell anything? Because these numbers are going to break down district by district in strange ways that aren't necessarily intuitive. We are if if the results are R plus seven or D plus seven then generally speaking, it's such a big gap that you're like, okay, there's something going on here. It's probably going to be a very favorable event uh, event election for one party or the other. The other way that we are able to tell something from this, and this is why I went on and gave people the boring timeline of, of these polls, is when there's a seismic shift in a short amount of time. Um, so to your point, John, like what does R plus three mean? Nothing. It means that it means that it's the the environment's not as good for Democrats if it was R pl- uh, D plus three. Um, but what we can take is that it feels like there has been a media narrative that has been propagated by certain pundits and columnists and pollsters saying that they felt a shift in the diners that they go and interview people at that is moving towards the Republicans and away from the Democrats. And then you have a bunch of people try and fill in why. And, you know, they, they, they fill in these anecdotal while Democrats are focusing on this issue and not this issue. Um, but I do think, John, that um, this is very important to show that there probably is something that's happening um, and it's something that's positive for Republicans. If we've observed this shift sometime in the last month or so, do we have any smart ideas about how to attribute it? 
So the ideas being posited, and they've been posited for a while now, are Democrats should have focused on abortion, but not for their closing argument, quote unquote. Democrats' messaging has been off. The student loan repayment uh, executive action has hurt them at the polls. There has been other other things posited, like uh, Democrats' messaging hasn't been as unified as it should. Um, Republicans have a stronger media ecosystem. And that is to say that pundits have been positing explanations for this that align with their pet issues. I think the strongest information that we have on specifically why this is happening so close to the election is twofold. Number one, gas. Uh, slightly gas prices have begun to reverse because they were on a downward trend and they've slightly began to stall out and tick back up. Um, but maybe even more importantly in the news, we've had discussions about the Biden administration, Saudi Arabia, and then people pontificating that this would affect gas prices massively. So, so that has become a narrative that is, um, once again in the forefront of people's minds for bad reasons. Uh, and I think that that's probably the, the main point. Point number two is Pew Research did a survey recently, October 16th, roughly, was the end date of that survey. And, and we sent it and we discussed it, John, offline. Um, but they showed the economic issues that people were somewhat or very interested in. 95% was gasoline. 93% was the cost of consumer goods. So that is to say, in a very generalized way, that inflation is the top economic issue on people's minds. And the number one issue on people's minds going into this election based on more generalized surveys is the economy. Um, so that is a, a bad thing for Democrats. And then the last thing, John, is I think people are now, they've gotten their ballots. Um, I don't know if you've received one in the mail in Massachusetts, but we have here in Washington, D.C., we, we did a, a week ago or so. So that means that people are now focused on the election and, and they're focused on more so who they're going to vote for. And I think because the economy is at the top of people's minds and that we're getting now closer and closer to the election, that this is the biggest reason to explain the, the large and late shift other than the other thing that could possibly be going on, which is when you have shifts like this, it could potentially be attributed to the way that the pollsters are weighting these surveys or polls. Um, and specifically, uh, when pollsters go out there and they ask, are you going to vote Republican or Democrat or which do you prefer? They don't just take all of the answers that they receive evenly and that's how you get your percentage. What they do is they normalize these responses to fit demographics, but also not only that, they normalize these responses to fit a projected turnout. So the pollsters are guessing on which party is going to have a specific rate of turnout. I think that it's a good theory that inflation is the biggest issue. It's certainly something we've heard about a lot. And like you said, there's polling data to support that claim. It is kind of interesting to think about the bigger picture where, as we know, inflation is a pretty big problem in the United States, but compared to many other economies, it looks like we're actually doing all right. Um, and funny enough, the value of the U.S. dollar in the international currency exchanges has actually increased a lot. Uh, so you wouldn't necessarily look at the big picture and think that the U.S. is doing particularly badly on inflation. The other thing that's kind of interesting to think about is voters are looking at a problem of inflation, choosing between two political options. And I'm not sure if I've 
you know, I'm not reading probably as much about U.S. campaigns as you are, Justin, but I actually haven't really seen a lot of discussion in the media that I've been reading about what the two different parties are offering differently in regard to inflation. What's the Democrats' plan for inflation and what's the Republicans' plan for inflation? If this is a big issue, what are we really choosing between as policy options? Well, what are we choosing between or what's the messaging? Because those are two very different things, right? All right. Well, tell me both then. I think what we're choosing between uh, is Republican gridlock. So the argument would be, and this fits into their messaging, that there'd be less spending and somehow that would be the magic bullet to cure inflation. Uh, Kevin McCarthy's plan, ironically, (laughs) a lot of aspects of it feels similar to Liz Truss's economics. So (laughs) maybe not the best um, uh, policy for the moment that we're specifically in. Uh, Democrats are arguing more of the same more building of green energy and uh, better international relations to lower down the price of gasoline. Can I actually inquire about that? Because I I mean, more of the same would be more huge spending packages like the ones that they've done in the last Congress, right? Because we've seen huge spending packages that were coming out of the pandemic. Are they actually promising that? Are the Democrats in their campaigns promising that they would do another, you know, huge tranche of um, stimulus, for example? I, I don't think they are, are they? And I don't think that's what we would get if we elected them. More of the same being more of the same for the inflation messaging that they have been using for the last couple of months, which has been muddled. Um, I, I think that, no, they're they're not necessarily messaging that there's going to be this huge spending. Um, but the Democrats really don't have a unified message on inflation either. So to, to be very clear about that, it's not like the, the Democrats have, um, you know, a three point plan that they're going to use for inflation. It's just that the Democrats are saying basically, uh, that the Republicans are ultimately worse on this issue. So there is no clear, um, message. And the answer, John, is because as we know, Congress can't really do too, too much on inflation. It's going to be at the immediate point. Um, it's going to be more tied into Federal Reserve policy. And voters don't know about Federal Reserve policy. Um, never mind knowing about it, they don't really care about it. So that's not going to be something that you can um, honestly message to. So the messaging that you're having from these campaigns is, we understand that inflation is bad. We are going to solve this issue. Um, and there's really not too many specific policy points just like the Republicans are dealing with, um, that the Democrats are rolling out there. The Democrats are in a worse off position because they're in power and they're in power during the inflationary period. So if voters are upset and if voters want to hold their politicians accountable for inflation, the logical reaction would be to vote for Republicans, especially if you're not a higher information voter. I kind of agree and disagree. I think the area that I disagree is that I'm not sure it's true that the voters don't care about the Fed. I think that, you know, most Americans have some money in the markets, maybe not a ton, but most Americans do have some money invested. The decisions that the Fed takes are very, very widely covered in media. And I also add that when I was at a congressional office, you know, just as an intern, but we used to get calls about the Fed all the time. One thing that I'll say, though, and I think this is where I agree with you, is that there isn't as clear a partisan dynamic to the decisions that the Fed makes. And I think that's a really good point. 
you know, the chairman of the Fed was originally, that's Jay Powell, Jerome Powell. He was originally appointed by Trump, a Republican, and then he was reappointed by Biden, a Democrat. And, you know, quite commonly, the Fed chairman is not really a very politicalized figure, not a very polarized figure on partisan grounds. So I think it's pretty fair. I agree with you that it can't really be an election issue in the way that some other things can, because you just can't really look at a difference and who gets elected and what the Fed are going to do. And that's to the credit of the Fed and the way that our system is constructed with an independent uh, Federal Reserve Bank. Well, I think that it's also a discredit to a lot of the decision making done by our voters, because in a similar way, voters don't vote on foreign policy for, for a large part. But leaving that aside, I think I want to come back to your question, John. What is the messaging for both parties? What can we expect? Um, that is that is the big question, right? Because you've so many times pointed out the Republicans don't have a solution. And I couldn't answer how the Democrats are messaging on inflation because they're not. And that's the debate raging in the specifically the Democratic Party. You have folks that are that that are saying the Democrats are focusing too much on abortion. And and their justification is they're focusing on abortion because they don't have an answer on inflation. And then you have progressives like Bernie Sanders, very pissed off. You have a uh, former campaign manager for Elizabeth Warren, Max Berger, come out and say, if Democrats, that Republicans are probably winning on the inflation issue because Democrats don't have a unified message. So what would that be? Well, progressives would argue, John, we need to pay people higher wages. That would be a policy solution to this. Now, I'm not saying that this is from an economic standpoint, has any any basis in reality. But I'm giving you the arguments that folks who say the Democrats don't have any unified messaging on inflation um, and need to adopt one, this is what they would prefer. You need to pay workers better. You need to have universal health care um, so that folks can um, not spend as much on health care, but also not worry a- as much on health care. You need to tax corporations more and you know, prevent them from price gouging. And that's their approach. That's the quote unquote answer. And we had Adam Green on our show back in February, I think it was. And he used the price gouging um, explanation for the rise in price of gas. I do not think that that's a convincing or credible argument, frankly. It's fanciful. It's an interest in just wishing away the economic fundamentals. And that's not smart or responsible. And blaming your en- the villains in your little narrative because these are progressives. So the corporations are always going to be the villains. So they're obviously doing something wrong that's hurting everybody else in this time when the general working class is is being hurt. Um, so, so that's the answer, John. And I wish I had a better answer for you so I could sound like I had the solutions. I don't have the solution to this problem. You know, I think that what you've said is, it has a lot of truth to it, which is that in lieu of a policy plan about inflation that's really explicit and well communicated from either of the two parties, what we're seeing is negative partisanship and a kind of pendulum reaction uh, against the incumbents for a current situation in the economy. And this is to pull on to another thing between progressives and and Democrats and you know how they view elections. So progressives argue that if you pass the panacea of progressive policy, which is going to make life just so good, 
that ultimately you're going to get higher turnout and you're going to win all of these elections. Um, and other folks who are, you know, less, uh, less, uh, their emotions are less wrapped up. They're less ideologically rigid. Um, they, they're not necessarily pushing an agenda to advance their policies and are trying to look at things objectively through elections say, Hey, folks don't vote on what you've just given them. They vote on the current state of things. So inflation, the economic standing, things in their own life, how, the, how they're doing, um, but also the future. Well, what can you do for me in the future if you've just done all of these things and you're not promising a bunch of new high spending progressive policies? Why should I vote for you? And, and I think that this election will really put to bed put to rest the argument um, when you're looking at campaigns of does passing a bunch of overly popular policies lead to a surefire electoral victory in the next election? Because the Democrats have done a lot of progressive things. You've just said it, John. I think you qualified it as big spending plans. Um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill has you know, a ton of solid policies that are supported by 60, 70% of the public, replacing our, our water infrastructure so people have clean drinking water, installing um, green electric vehicle charging stations across the nation, giving rebates, climate change, rebuilding roads and bridges and airports. We have the Inflation Reduction Act, which is massive for climate change things, but also for reducing the prescription price, uh, the drug the drug prices that, that folks are facing, and a whole host of other things. The Democrats have also done student loan forgiveness, which is now caught up, caught up in the courts. Um, but these are just a few things. I'm sure you can probably rattle off some more than I'm just forgetting off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, other stuff that I would add to that, I mean, these aren't necessarily in that category of the big ticket spending items, but you know, the CHIPS Act is a pretty big deal. It transforms the way that the semiconductor, global semiconductor market is going to operate. And championed by progressive Rokana. And also the Biden administration have taken some pretty aggressive um, executive administrative actions to limit China's access to semiconductors. It's a pretty, that, that's going to be a big deal down the road. Uh, there's a gun control bill, which is the first time that was achieved in a long time. It's a, you know, it's a very modest step, but still in the world that we're in, in the U.S. with gun control, any step is, it, it, it matters. John, politics, any step in anything matters in, in the world we're in in politics and the divided, polarized. Yeah, I, I think also, you know, a lot of people are going to look at the recent announcements about marijuana as being significant. The withdrawal of Afghanistan, because we've forgotten. Yeah. And the support for Ukraine that, and, you know, the alliance management in Europe, which has been, I think, quite successful. I, you know, alliance management in the Middle East has not been successful at all. It's been a disaster. But uh, in Europe and to a large extent in Asia Pacific, the alliance management has, has been excellent. Coming back to the major challenge for campaigns, I think something that you're kind of implying and getting close to hitting on, but I think that we should really kind of draw out and and bring attention to is that the real fundamental challenge here is trying to run a national campaign when this election is really quite localized. So the U.S. House elections that happen every two years are meant to be national races. That's the way the system is designed, that every single U.S. House district is up for election every two years. So you run a national campaign. But it, it doesn't really work that way now because of some of the stuff we were talking about before with regional sorting of voters and gerrymandering, we've ended up with only, what is it, 40, 50, maybe a little bit more than that, districts that are really competitive. 
that are really up for grabs. So this question about, you know, base turnout versus trying to reach the stereotypical voter in the diner, you know, it's these 40 districts that are going to decide partisan control of the House. So those are the people that you really need to speak to, for better or worse. Frankly, for worse, from the Democratic, small D, and I mean small, small D, D, Democratic perspective. You know, you want all the voters to matter in a democracy, but we're in a situation where some voters matter a lot more than others. And in the Senate, it's even more stark. And the Senate, you know, it wasn't designed at all to be a national election, really, ever. It is state-by-state elections, and only a third of the Senate seats are up. So these are even more localized and state-specific. And we've got a handful of states. It's actually, this year, it's quite a big number that are competitive. But these are specific states that matter. So these uh, theories about how best to win an election are kind of a little bit misplaced because if you want to win this election, it's not about your national grand strategy. It's about how your strategy is playing in these specific geographic and demographic environments, local at once. So I would quibble, I'd say 60 seats in the house, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was looking at you to give me the number. I thought you Yeah, know yeah, yeah. No, me. no, yeah. no. I agree with everything you're saying. Out of 435, there's about 60, you know, and somebody would say 70 or 50. But, you know, basically, uh, you'd, you'd expect in a massive wave election, 45 seats to change uh, balance. And then you'd have, you know, maybe 10 or 15 within the margin of five points. But to your point, John, that is to say, I'm not going to do the math off the top of my head, but 60 out of 435 shows you that not all 435 necessarily um, are that important. But also, you made a very counterintuitive point that many in the audience uh, may not value. It was it was very important that you pointed this out. The House districts, which are roughly 750,000 voters, um, versus the Senate elections, which are you know up to tens of millions of people in a state, the House districts are more nationalized, which makes no sense compared to, to a Senate race. And um, you know, obviously everything is super local and the local dynamics really matter. Um, but you're going to have, for example, in a, in a Senate race or a House race, the House strategy could be much more aligned with the national messaging. And you're going to have a House candidate or incumbent be much more likely to go on national TV even than a senator. And that is because of everything that you just outlined. Um, so, so I think it's, it's very important. Like when we're talking about this, we just overgeneralized the national sentiment in the issues that we're facing. Um, but ultimately a lot of this comes down to the local dynamics. What I will say though, John, and you've been, and as we, we're going to get into the Senate races that we have coming up here. Um, it's rather troubling because I think that you have on the GOP side, a lot of horrible candidates and, and you've been quick to, and, uh, consistent with making this uh, out to compare to, I think it was 2014, the the Todd Akin cycle, where the GOP ran all of these horrible candidates, and that's why they lost these close races. 2012. 2012. Sorry, it's it's late, folks. I just got back from Houston. But in the, in, in the GOP this cycle, unfortunately, you have all of the polling in a lot of these states moving towards the crappy GOP candidate, Herschel Walker, who threatened his ex-wife with gun with a gun, literally, um, is 
probably has some type of lingering effects from boxing and playing football, can't string together a coherent sentence, has been lying and caught lying about the number of kids he has, never mind the fact that he paid for an abortion, and polls are showing him in a dead heat with a a former pastor, Senator Raphael Warnock, an incumbent who uh, generally appears to be an upstanding gentleman who's, you know, very charismatic, good on the stump speech. Same thing in in Pennsylvania. You have um, Dr. Oz, who's a carpetbagger. He's not even from there. He's from New Jersey. He's literally a snake oil salesman. That's what he did on TV to make money. Um, He has no solutions. He's been giving out these weird and bizarre social media things like crudite. Um, He just hosted a medical panel on the opioid crisis. And for our listeners around the country, that's a very big thing, not only for me personally with um, my father and my family history, but also people in Pennsylvania and New Hampshire and Ohio. Um, It has ravaged these areas. Um, He hosted a panel and he invited a addiction expert on the panel for an hour. And the person goes off this undecided voter and expert on the, on the, on the issues comes away to NBC news and says, well, I've made up my mind after having discussions with Dr. Oz, I'm voting for Fetterman because his solutions were just harebrained, non-existent. It was your typical political blathering. Um, and then in Arizona, you have Senator Mark Kelly's office saying that the, the polling is tight between Blake Masters, who are credibly could be described a white nationalist, um, who's not that charismatic, who basically received a bunch of startup funding from Peter Thiel. Um, so John, while all of these races are hyper-localized and folks like Mark Kelly you have not seen or Raphael Warnock on the national air, and you have to assume without being in these states day to day that they're running very good campaigns because they won very difficult elections the first time around. Um, there is a troubling trend that as we get more polarized, the quality of candidate won't matter. The way that these elections are localized won't matter. And it's basically your your tides are going to rise or sink based on national sentiment. So I'd love to get your thoughts on it scares me. Well, you know, in your rundown of all of the candidates and their flaws, you've even left out a few. I mean, on the Republican side, some of the other ones that have received similar criticism to what you offered would be. I have. I didn't want to keep going. Yeah, Don Bolduck in New Hampshire, J.D. Vance in Ohio, Ron Johnson, who's an incumbent in Wisconsin. And then, you know, on the Democratic side, there's a few candidates that have some flaws, some question marks. You know, there's a lot of talk about Cortez Masto, an incumbent in Nevada, being a bit of a weak candidate. And also John Fetterman. I mean, John Fetterman has his own question marks, his own flaws, and his negatives have been driven up pretty high by recent uh, barrage of advertising from the GOP side who really think they have a shot of winning that race. And those ads are very national, just not to cut you off, but they're very, oh, yeah, sure, you know, yeah. they're, they're very national, like basically painting him as a brain dead stroke victim, but also an extreme and progressive. Yeah. A lot of people listening will probably be upset with me that I'm saying this, but I do think that it is actually fair to raise that health question. I remember when Mark Kirk was a U.S. Senator, he was representing Illinois as a Republican. And he had had a stroke in office, and it was clearly impacting his ability to do the job. It really was. And we've also seen recent critical coverage of other members of the Senate who have- Dianne Feinstein. Yeah, who are, who are demonstrating that their age and health conditions are impacting their ability to do the job. And Dianne Feinstein most notably, but not only Dianne Feinstein. Um, and so I, I think it, it, is, it is fair to look at that because 
Pennsylvania are looking for a senator, someone who can do the work for the state. And it's not just about showing up and voting. I mean, it's a lot of other things. It's all the constituent casework, which is a really important part of what members of Congress, including senators, do. Um, their voice needs to be at the table during committee work. Um, it's important to have a capable, credible person. And that's why it's such a shame that so many states have people who aren't really interested in doing that kind of work at all. People like, you know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who are only really in the Senate to pursue a media career. Uh, you need to have someone at the table who's representing you. And I, I am concerned. I mean, on behalf of all those voters uh, that um, if they have a senator who's in really serious health condition, that that will impact their ability to be represented to the fullest ability of of their senator. So I think that matters. I think it's it's a fair thing to write. Of course, like you said, uh, Oz has plenty of his own questions as well. But um, the funny thing is I've always noticed with these races is after they're over and decided, everybody looks at them all as if they were preordained. You know, what is it? Uh, November 9th, November 10th, we'll be looking back and saying, oh, of course, you know, this candidate was better. They ran a better campaign. The other candidate should have done ABC. Yeah. And I mean, this stuff is decided at the smallest margin. And you can run a really good campaign and lose. You can run a bad campaign and win. I mean, I, there are some that will escape this kind of analysis. I think that the Tim Ryan campaign is going to end up getting a lot of compliments, whether or not he wins, just based on the coverage we've seen so far. He's in a tough uh, uphill race in a state that's moved. It's Ohio we're talking about. That's moved uh, pretty far into the Republican column. So I think that he'll get plaudits if he if he comes close. It was the same thing with Beto O'Rourke, who got a lot of credit for coming relatively close in Texas when he ran for Senate. And then um, he kind of uh, lost a lot of that goodwill when he ran for president and embarrassed himself a bit. Uh, but, you know, you can sometimes get credit even if you lose. But generally, it's just so zero sum. And we we praise the winner and attack the loser. I think it would be a fool's errand to predict the outcome of almost any of these. And, uh, you know, we'll wait for the Monday morning quarterbacking to decide he's done a great job and who's, you know, the worst campaign <laughs> of in history. I never talk in, in maxims or hyperbole, John, so I don't know about what you're saying. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, it's certainly. Yeah, that would never. Who could imagine that? No, no. I, I just wanted to add, I think you're right to point out Tim Ryan, right? Like he's running this great campaign. I think that he's somebody that fits the state right? He's a fighter. And and for everybody listening, his message, having followed this campaign, is not only is he great at just trolling J.D. Vance, um, but his message is basically, he, he comes off as very brash, not too polished, like not like he's a Harvard educated person or anything like that. But then he uses that brashness and that, um, you know, legitimate, um, you know, working class uh, persona to say, I'm going to fight for you as workers. And one of his big issues is unions. Um, and, and that plays into inflation. So like, it's, it's, a, it's a, go ahead. Oh, no, not to interrupt you. But an, another thing that he's emphasized is his career as an American football player. I suppose he's not alone in that because we've got Herschel Walker, who that's almost his only <laughs> stake as a candidate. But uh, Tim Ryan has been able to to lean into that and play that up, which makes him different from J.D. Vance, who's, you know, like a venture capitalist and, and Yale lawyer. So I think that, uh, you know, in a state where, uh, you know, athleticism and sporting prowess are uh, certainly a proud thing. That's helped him. I, I think there was an incident that happened during the campaign when Vance scheduled a big rally 
at uh, a day when the Ohio State uh, college football team were having a big game. And Ryan was uh, kind of running ads, showing him playing football and, and mocking Vance for not really knowing much about the sport. So uh, that's something that Ryan has been able to play up. And it, you know, it puts him in the same group as, as Herschel Walker. Well, for that I reason, think- you know, these are the uh, American football players who are running for Senate. They're dissimilar in many other ways, but they have that in common. Just to bring this back, we're, we're not going to make any predictions here, but to break this back, there has been some national attacks on these Democrats. Like for uh, every race we've just talked about, they've <laughs> they're in the Senate, mind you, John. But the Republicans have been saying they're going to do Nancy Pelosi's bidding. Right. Because, you know, Chuck Schumer is eh, he's not Nancy Pelosi, like may arguably the most historic legislator, you know, in the last century. One of he's she's on the list. Um, and Tim Ryan has been able to credibly say, look, I'm one of the few people that stood up to Nancy Pelosi. I tried to oust her as speaker because he ran, he ran a, yeah, that's he true. Ran a yeah. failed and embarrassing campaign um, to try and unseat her. We spoke to one of his comrades in that effort, uh, a gentleman, Seth Moulton, who represents a district not far from where I am here in Massachusetts. Comrades in arms. <laughs> and he referred to Nancy Pelosi, what is a dictator? He said- She has dictatorial tendencies. Yeah. He said, you know, the things I don't like about how we run the house are these dictatorial dictatorial tendencies and how we assign committee leadership. Like, wow, there's a, there's a nice sound bite, isn't it? However, he said, we may need that touch now in such a closely divided house to get get election legislations passed. It is funny, though, that you mentioned the ubiquity of Nancy Pelosi even today in some of these attack ads. I'm not sure if she's really even as unpopular as she used to be, but she is such a well-known figure. And so is McConnell on the other side of, of the, uh, you know, the Congress in the other chamber. Um, he is someone that you can put an attack ad because he's got quite high name ID, even though he's now in the minority. And their counterparts, uh, being Kevin McCarthy and Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer, they're really not very well known at all, are they? And, you know, it speaks to the longevity of Pelosi and McConnell probably more than anything else. But it also does say something about their stature, doesn't it? And their acumen, I would argue, not to, <laughs> not to, um, especially in the case of uh, McCarthy. There was a video during the January 6th uh, hearing, and it's, you know, it's a video of what's going on in this closed room. And, and you have Nancy Pelosi on the phone with the vice president of the United States imploring um, uh, the, the National Guard to be sent in. And out of the corner of the video, you hear Chuck Schumer say, I was just on the phone with the VP elect. And then somebody else you hear say, okay, Chuck, thanks. <laughs> and it's like that encapsulates yeah. the relationship. Speaking of the VP elect, someone with a really important role in the response to the attack <laughs> on the Capitol. I guess we're kind of veering off and talking the election. Well, maybe not so much. But uh, just because you mentioned McCarthy, I mean, you know, for me as a voter, as a citizen, I'm a little bit concerned about what's going to happen with him as the Speaker of the House if uh, the Republicans win the majority in the House, which they're expected to do pretty, pretty broadly. Um, you know, it's a bit of a nightmare imagining how he's going to try to manage the House. I mean, he did an interview with Jake Sherman at Punchbowl, and he said openly that he is actively planning to. Uh, hold the debt limit or the debt ceiling hostage and, uh, you know, risk a U.S. default uh, in an effort to get the U.S. to cut Medicare and Social Security benefits. And it's remarkable that somebody would say this in the middle of a campaign. 
I, I'm a little surprised that it hasn't become a bigger story because uh, people, you know, have a lot of stake in Social Security and Medicare and in the standing of the U.S. and global economy. Because this would be an act of sabotage, not just for the U.S., but for the global economy. The last time this happened, the U.S. lost uh, points on its credit rating. And um, he's saying that the, he's going to do this. And when you look at the way that McCarthy approaches politics and policy, you know, it's funny. We started this conversation talking about the U.K. Tory party because I, I told you this offline. But Kevin McCarthy is without question the American that reminds me the most of the people who are leading the U.K. Tory party. So of Liz Truss. Well, yeah, I mean, not just Liz Truss. When I was kind of giving the narrative about how we got to where we were over 12 years of Tory rule, I was talking about how many of these figures from David Cameron to Theresa May to Liz Truss, they had to make their decisions based on the management of the parliamentary party caucus. And this was coming, in many cases, ahead of the national interest. And this is what I see with Kevin McCarthy, where his focus is just 100% on managing the caucus and trying to get the position of Speaker of the House without really an idea of what he wants to do with it, just so that he can have had the prestigious job. And it's all just about how he can get there and hold together and cobble together and placate all these different groups that he has to manage in the caucus. There isn't a vision for the country. It's just a vision for his career. He's an empty suit careerist who is going to damage our economy actively, deliberately, by choice, without any real reason other than to try to get the big gold ring that he's been chasing for the last six, seven years. And I would say that they're polar opposites, Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy, right? She uses a iron fist to get her caucus in line. Uh, and the ultimately, her guiding principles are policies. I would argue Mitch McConnell, whether I agree with him or not, his guiding principles are policies or judges or um, these greater ideals that he will believe will shape the country. Um, but Kevin McCarthy, I think you just hit it, the nail on the head. He is an empty suit. And he may have a tenure that rivals Liz Truss's if he is indeed even the next leader of the House. Just to wrap this back into what we were saying about these elections and how everything matters at the end of the day. I, I would argue that's another way of saying nothing matters at the end of the day in these tight elections. But really, to be uh, put a fine point on this, if the Republicans, it really does depend, this trend that we're seeing. I, I think that no matter the trend, it's likely the Republicans take the House. But if the margin that the Republicans take the House by is extremely narrow, if it's only 20 seats, which means that Kevin McCarthy only has like a 10 or 11 seat advantage, that puts his position in a much more precarious light where he may be more beholden to the Looney Tunes, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boberts, because that means they'll only need to create a group of 12 to completely determine what they do. And, and his priorities, John, are, like you said, potentially holding the, the debt limit as legislation negotiations hostage for you know some real political messaging, but also it's to impeach people. It's to impeach Merrick Garland. What what is if we set up the precedent that we're going to start impeaching the top law enforcement official in the United States just because the political party in power changes in the House? That's insane. Um, so so this is this is serious stuff. Even if you're looking at these elections from the perspective of being a Republican or Democrat, the margins in these races truly does matter. So I did want to just like put a fine point on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the idea about impeaching Merrick Garland. It's, I mean, it's hard to find any kind of credible complaint you can make about Merrick Garland. I mean, this has been a real model 
not 100%, but much more than we've seen since at least Janet Reno in the 1990s of insulating the Department of Justice and its leadership from political pressure. It's, it's, it, people should be very satisfied with, with that. And really to the credit of this administration that they've managed this because Democratic and Republican presidents in the last 20 years have chosen to bring in an attorney general that was very close to the White House and it's created problems for all of them. We're talking about what would happen in a Kevin McCarthy house with a narrow majority. Like I said, it's just reminding me back over in the UK of Theresa May's government after 2017 when she didn't have an absolute majority and she had to rely on this coalition and supply arrangement or confidence and supply arrangement with the Democratic Unionists of Northern Ireland, it, 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 it becomes unmanageable. It becomes unmanageable. And, you know, you're talking about the, the priorities of these leaders. And, you know, you mentioned McConnell, and I'm sure many of our listeners won't be happy to hear me compliment McConnell, but really, to his credit in the last Congress, he's demonstrated that he has the credibility and the stature to put policy first in a lot of cases. I mean, you know, with McConnell, there's always a bit of maneuvering. And the way that he approached the infrastructure bill and the chips bill, it kind of seemed like he wanted to only, uh, you know, offer his full support if he knew that Democrats were going to pursue other things. There was still a bit of horse trading. But we saw him back a number of big ticket items that uh, he didn't have the support of his full caucus on because he believed that they were the right policy direction for the country. And he was able to do that without his position as the leader in the Senate really being questioned, because he had the credibility and confidence of his caucus. McCarthy doesn't have that. And he also, like we were saying, he doesn't appear to have any real convictions about what the right thing to do is anyway. So um, I'm very concerned about what's going to happen if he ends up as the Speaker of the House. And not to really lather on the plaudits for Mitch McConnell, but um, he at one point was viewed as Nancy Pelosi. And uh, he was viewed in a precarious and tenuous position in the Senate because he was getting attacked by these you know, rabble rousers. Um, but I do want to just say that there has to be horse trading, Mr. Gunnison, and for our audience, because how do you think he maintains this position of relative stability in his party? It's working with the other leaders and telling them that, you know, he's going to advance their priorities. So, but at the end of the day, like you said, he told folks if they wanted, like that he supported the bipartisan infrastructure bill, that he supported the chips bill. He could have torpedoed the, um, he could have torpedoed gun legislation at any turn. He could have torpedoed a significant portion of the large pieces of accomplishments that we just listed off 20 minutes ago that the Biden administration uh, was able to get through. So that that is very different than McCarthy. Yeah. And just like you said, you know, you know, let's not soft pedal it at all. He did build up this credibility through decades of work as a fierce and committed partisan. Holding a knife behind his back and being willing to use it. <laughs> often obstructionist. But even throughout that period, we had the idea, the sense that he was doing this for a policy end, right? A greater good from his eyes. From his perspective, which yes. I'm sure many of our listeners would not agree with those priorities, not agree with those values. But we can tell that there is a real goal for McConnell. Uh, th th there was a real aim that had to do with the direction of the country. You know, he was very focused on judiciary and for specific ideological and political reasons. And he focused on it and he 
followed through and, and, and made it happen, but with a very patient effort over a long time. You, we, we really don't see anything like this with McCarthy. The through line wasn't just career for McConnell. And you and I are well aware and our listeners are well aware of what he did with the Supreme Court with the obstruction in Merrick Garland. And, and that was very, 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 very bad. However, I fear that we're so polarized and that the r- religious right um, is turning into the Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Barbert right that like the Democrats rue for the days of George W. Bush, because now we have Donald Trump. We're potentially at the point where in 10 years, 15 years, you may have Democrats rue for the day when we had legislators like Mitch McConnell, which if you say that to progressives, I might get punched in the face. Um, They would not like that. People might vomit at that idea. But that is to say that we are headed down the route of Kevin McCarthy, of J.D. Vance, God forbid, and people like that being these leaders. Well, I think, you know, maybe to kind of come full circle on our conversation, the real question is whether an increasingly incompetent and extreme direction will lead to one party or the other. I think we're talking about the Republican Party in particular, see the bottom fall out of their support, because that's what we saw in the UK. We saw a party that have been the most successful party in the history of the country that see themselves as a natural governing party of the country that have been in power for 12 years, winning majorities in consecutive elections, or at least pluralities, if you kind of think about the 2017 one. We've seen them go down to 6% in support because the public looked at the offer and looked at the product and said, it's not good enough. And the question is whether that's even really possible in the United States or whether there is a floor of support of something like 35% that no party can ever get under, whether or not they lead a terrorist attack against the Capitol, whether or not they tank the economy, whether or not they lead us into a disastrous war, whether or not there's a corruption scandal so comprehensive, it, it, it takes any question of moral standing out of the picture. It's hard to see what anyone could do after the presidency of Donald Trump to get below that floor of 35% support that both parties seem to have. And that maybe is what makes us different from the UK and some of our peers.